Well, folks, it's lovely to be back with you again in St. Peter's. Um, I have been FaceTiming David Robertson most weeks, and I can report that he is enjoying life. Enjoying the life of a typical Chardonnay socialist, if I may say. Um, Avocado and toast, granola, sour bread. Uh, He'll be on balsamic vinegar soon, Uh, the, the, the way he's going. Can we open up God's Word, please? The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 4. Luke 4. Let me just read the passage. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during these days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Just read the next verse. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. This is the word of the Lord. Sports psychology is a big thing, and any major sporting institution will always employ a sports psychologist to give them that little extra edge. And one of the things in sports psychologists is to ask yourself, are you a wolf or are you an elk? Because apparently it's a thing. Uh, Apparently that elks behave very, very differently in the presence of wolves than they do obviously on their own. And the idea is that if you're a wolf, all you have to do is show up. You don't really have to do anything. And the wolves are seen as the top predators. And so in Scottish soccer, back in the day, old firm players were wolves. They were big guys, very, very physical, very, very rough. And very often, just when they turned up, they had this uh, wolf-like significance in the game. All they need to do really is show up. They create a landscape of fear. Now what we have here this morning in the passage here is one of the most dramatic fails in intimidation ever. 
When we have God, the devil trying to intimidate the Lord Jesus Christ in this very famous passage here in Luke's Gospel. And of course, the nature of the intimidation is very, very subtle. It strikes at the very root of our being, of our personhood. It strikes at the very thing, who are you? And that's the question that really has to be answered by all of us, but most fundamentally here, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are you? Are you really the Son of God? Why have you come? Do you really have to go to the cross? And we find here that what we have is Satan is trying to pull the Lord Jesus Christ away from his mission. So this morning we're going to look at this passage and we're going to look at it a little slightly differently. Traditionally, folk view this passage as, well, Jesus encountered temptation this way, therefore he was an example, and therefore we should counteract temptation in a similar way. I don't think that that's the main purpose of the passage. I think we see something else in the passage. Because very often we read the Bible as if it's all about us. That really it's a manual for living, and we've just got to follow the instructions and live according to the Bible. And of course that is true. Of course it's true. But the Bible is not all about us. The Bible is all about Jesus. And if we get that, if we get all the stars in alignment to perhaps use a recent metaphor, if we get the Lord Jesus Christ as first, then we ourselves will be stronger to be able to fight against temptation. So it's not about us, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look very, very briefly. We just had an introduction. We're going to look at the context, and we're going to look at the three temptations. So there should be a degree of order in amidst all the chaos. If you look at the passage there, the devil says to him, verse 3, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Now, the Son of God is not something that fell in there by accident. In in Luke 1, we read that Adam was the Son of God. Uh, We can read again in Exodus 4.22 that Israel was called the Son of God. So there you have two epic fails. Adam failed as the Son of God back there in Genesis chapter 2. Israel, if you read there, Exodus 4.22, God declares, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel failed because they rebelled against God. So the devil is almost going here, well, this is third time lucky. This is the third chance we've got to get to a son of God figure. But the point here is that we've got the ultimate son of God figure, don't we? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how is this a significant passage? Well, it's significant for three reasons. Number one, it's really important because three out of the four Gospels uh, record it. What we have here is he emerges, verse 1, he left the Jordan. It's at the beginning of his public ministry. And so, in one hand, Jesus is is a Psalm 2 figure. You know, he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords, starting off a new ministry. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus is the victorious king of kings. The Psalm 2 emerges from the Jordan, ready for the mission of a king. 
But then at the same time, he's also Isaiah 53. He's also the suffering servant. And Jesus is being played here or attempted to be played by Satan. Is he the king of kings or is he the suffering servant? And one is almost playing against one another. So there's a very significant passage three out of the four gospels recorded. It's significant also because of his source. Where do you think that Luke got this material from? The only person he could have got it from is Jesus. Because there was just Jesus and the devil in the room. There wasn't anyone else there. So what we have here is the Lord Jesus Christ disclosing something very private and something very personal in this room. We're divided into two. There are some of us who are, you know, quite private people. Nobody knows what our lives are like. You Google us. Our our Facebook presence is minimal. Our social network is minimal. Others, you Google us. We're everywhere. Our photographs are there. There's Instagrams of our dinner. Everything. Our life is for everyone to see. And what we have here is the Lord Jesus Christ taking a very private temptation between him and the devil. The experience is private, but he shares it with others so that there would, of course, be benefit to many people. So it's significant because it's widely reported. It's significant because it's really private and very personal. It's significant also because of its teaching about the devil. So many people laugh about the devil and the dark side. Listening to a program in Radio Scotland recently, a guy called Larry Dean. Larry Dean is an up-and-coming, emerging Glaswegian comedian. Uh, all Glaswegians are comedian, but he he's a professional comedian. And uh, the interesting thing is that one of his things, one of his star turns is to laugh about the devil and laugh about hell and laugh about the dark side. And so we've got this little domesticated view of the devil with his cloven feet and his little horns and his a little cute character. And you can almost see yourself going into a novelty shop and buying a little cute Satan for your newborn baby because they look so cuddly and they look so inoffensive. And of course, nothing helps the devil more and nothing that he enjoys more as being held in a certain degree of contempt. He is the one with the cloven hooves and a little toasting fork, but really he's naughty but harmless. And yet we have the Lord Jesus Christ has more to say about the devil than any other figure in the Bible. The devil is real, and we see the reality of the devil in this passage we're looking at here in Luke chapter 4. So again, unpack a little bit more of the context. Look at verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The context here is that we've got a profile of the Spirit-filled person. Now, much is written about what the spirit-filled person looks like. And there are many images about what a spirit-filled person looks like. 
This spirit-filled person may look like someone at a Hillsong service, you know, really blonde and attractive, you know, singing lively worship songs, hands raised. That's what it's like to be filled with the Spirit. A spirit-filled person may be someone at a Banner of Truth conference with a black suit and a black tie, reading a Puritan paperback, and that's another picture of what a spirit-filled person is. Jesus, verse 1, full of the Holy Spirit. If you want to know what a spirit-filled person looks like, look at Jesus. He is the quintessential spirit-filled person. And if you want to have this idea that to be filled with the Spirit is a warm, exhilarating experience, then again, look at what the passage said. He was filled with the Spirit and immediately he is tempted. He is filled with the Spirit and immediately he is in conflict. He is filled with the Spirit and we find here that the Spirit drove him out into the desert. And the picture here is like a champion to a prize fight. And the Lord Jesus Christ is a champion, and he's brought into this prize fight situation, and the toughness is there. And so to be filled with the Spirit is not akin to singing kumbaya and floating into church, looking as if you've come out of a dove soap advert dressed in Laura Ashley, and that's just the boys. (laughs) Why did Jesus come? He was filled with the Spirit. And that meant that he was driven into the very heartland of the kingdom of darkness. Why did he come? To dream the impossible dream, to beat the unbeatable foe, to bear with unbearable sorrow, to run where the brave dare not go. This is my quest, to follow that star, no matter how hopeless, no matter how far, to fight for the right without question or pause, to be willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause. So that's the context. The Lord Jesus Christ filled with the Spirit, the prize fighter, now marching into hell for the heavenly cause. And immediately we find that he is assaulted by the devil. And he comes under three different temptations. Temptation number one. How can we summarize it? Temptation number one, I summarize it like this, is to live for himself and not for us. Look at it there in verse 3. If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now imagine the situation. He has 40 years without food, 40 days rather, without food or drink. He must have been starving. This is no sort of, you know, David Blaine, you know, his thing suspended above the the river Thames, above the below uh, thing that that he did. Jesus could have turned water into wine. Jesus could have just produced food. Jesus could have done anything. He multiplied the loaves and the fishes. But the temptation here is at the very weak, 
weakest spot of his life. Now, the devil is not good, but he's good at what he does. He really is. Don't underestimate him. Have that respect for the devil. And the temptation there seems very ordinary, and indeed it seems to be good. Tell this stone to become bread. You're entitled to this. Come on. You've been fasting for 40 days. And this is a good thing to do. You know, temptation is not always malevolent. It's not always kind of towards the seedier side of life. There was nothing wrong with the bread. But the temptation here was to presume on his sonship to take a shortcut. If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, there's a a parallel, of course, isn't there? Jesus, just as he does 40 days in the desert, the parallel, of course, is the children of Israel doing 40 years in the wilderness. They failed. They grumbled. They wanted back to the, you know, casserole of Egypt. They wanted back to the beef stroganoffs that they had left behind. They were fed up with, you know, manna and quail. You know, the famous uh, 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 Jewish cooking book, 200 Things to to, to Do with Manna and Quail. They, they, They were fed up with it. There was a temptation to give up. And they were complaining, they, were capi- they, they, they capitulated. Jesus, however, was the new Israel. Jesus succeeded where they failed. They, they couldn't get it going, they were constantly complaining. His was the way of self-emptying, not the way of self-satisfaction. And so what the devil was saying to Jesus here at the very beginning of his ministry was... Don't live for others, live for yourself. You see the contrast there. His, again, was the way of self-emptying, not the way of self-satisfaction. Satan is the one who grasps. Jesus is the one who lets go. And of course, Jesus quotes the Bible to him. It's bigger than bread, he says, verse 4. Man shall not live on bread alone. He says, I'm going to follow God's will. You may offer me a cheap BLT, and that may give a little bit of satisfaction for a short time, but my mission is bigger. My mission is to live and die for other people. And the temptation here is, will he feed himself or will he feed others? That's one of the points. Jesus came not to feed himself, but to be the food. Jesus came that he would be nothing, not that he would be everything. Temptation number one then. Jesus, why don't you live for yourself and not for others? Temptation number two is not to remove evil. Verse five, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I will give you their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. 
well, if Satan's anything, he is absolutely audacious. You know what a Ponzi scheme is? You've heard of Bernie Madoff, you know, selling stuff, great investments, but it doesn't belong to anything. I watched a, a movie last night, The Greatest Showman, about the impresario who starts up a, 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 a circus in, in New York and he borrows money at the bank and it's all borrowed in something that doesn't exist. <coughs> and that's what we have here. Satan offers what he can't deliver. That is his constant game. He is saying, if you go down A, then B will come. And we swallow all the time. Now, we expect, you know, ha-ha. Jesus is offered the throne, but it belongs to Jesus. Now, there's an element of truth in what Satan says. Because he's, he's been given some power. He is not without influence. Of course he has. He is, and Jesus calls him, the prince of this world. And if you held an election by democratic choice, Satan remains the prince of the world. You talk about Brexit being complex. Well, you ask the general population, is it the Lord Jesus Christ with all that he demands? Or is it Satan for all that he promises? And by popular demand, folk will go, well, we want what Satan can offer. What does he offer? He, the... They think it's all about money. It's all about mirrors. Satan is the one who designed the smoke and mirrors. That's why he's called the, the prince of this world. And so Satan is saying to Jesus, Hey man, th- this could be an amazing double act. You've got you, Jesus, and me, Satan. <laughs> the two biggest players in the universe. You know, the powers of darkness and the powers of light combined, you know, if we went into this world domination business, we could do anything. And all this can be yours for the price of one little genuflection or whatever. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. All we have to do, and we can do amazing things together. You can even be the senior partner. All this world of suffering, we, we, we could eliminate it. And basically, what Satan is saying here is, Jesus, you can have a crown without a cross. There is another way. You can avoid all this mess, all this blood and sacrifice and atonement business. Let's just get into business. You see, what Satan was offering here was a kind of world domination. It's almost like James Bond villain on steroids, isn't it? That's what we have there in verse 6. But the gospel is about turning the world upside down. But it's not just about social improvement. 
the gospel has implications which are political, but it's bigger than politics. Of course it is. That is why, you know, social change is driven by the church and can be driven by the church, but it's bigger than that. We are not simply into that. We are into world transformation, turning the world upside down. You see, social improvement systems do not change the world order, which is run by Satan. Now, I'm not talking about that Illuminati conspiracy theory thing, you know, that there are hidden, you know, Masonic Illuminati uh, plots absolutely everywhere, and that Nicola Sturgeon is, uh, you know, the great wizard of the Ku Klux Klan in disguise, and Theresa May, May is really, you know, the, the Grand Mason, and they're, they're out to dominate us, and you go to Davos, that's where they all gather. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that the world order is run by Satan. The values, the ethics, the economy, the morality. He's, he's everywhere. He's multinational. And Jesus is saying, no, we're not going to buy into that. We're going to turn it upside down. My purpose is to change the world in a more radical way. And so we've got that second temptation, haven't we? Not to remove evil. Let's be complicit in it. So temptation number one, you don't need to do it this way. Temptation number two, let's not, uh, uh, let's remove evil. Temptation number three is even more crass. You don't need to die. Look at verse nine. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. Now, the devil's caught on to it because the last two times Jesus has quoted the Bible and Satan is saying, ah, I've got onto this Bible quoting stuff. This is, this is the way to go. He's good. So he starts quoting the Bible. Verse 10, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully so that they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The story is they go in some way to the highest point of the temple and Satan encourages this great celestial bungee jump. Just jump off. He says it'll be okay because it says there, and that's Psalm 91, it says that if you jump off, the angels will come and they're going to get you. It's a brilliant temptation here. Satan's not good, but he's good at what he does, remember. He even uses the Bible. What if Jesus had bitten it? What if Jesus had says, okay, let me demonstrate this. Now, it would reverse the complete mission of Jesus. Jesus came 
not for his life to be saved in terms of verse 10 and 11, but Jesus came to throw himself down to the cross without rescue. He came to take death, not to avoid death. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was completely submitted to his Father's will. Not my will, but your will be done. And even from a cross, they said, save yourself, save yourself. At the very core of the gospel is the atonement. A Jesus who doesn't die as a substitute, taking divine wrath upon himself so that it doesn't fall in us. That's not a gospel. If we don't have that in our gospel, it's not worth proclaiming. And Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to test. Adam had crumbled. Israel had crumbled. Jesus did not. See, that's the point of the passage. It's very often preached that if we go into temptation and we do what Jesus did, we'll sail through. Folks, we will be crushed. Because there is a weakness in us. There is a weakness in what we do. We, I don't know about you, maybe you're stronger than, than, than I am. But I just don't have that capacity. I just fall at every turn. He is the only one who has really and truly defeated the devil. And so if we are going to defeat the devil, we don't do it simply, simply by using his tactics. That is moralism in a sense. We do it by hanging on to him. I'm just been made this a couple of weeks ago a grandfather. It's a new experience. Far too young to be a grandfather. But that's it. It just happened. And it got me thinking. My very first memory in life. I don't know if there are any psychologists present. You'd need a few hours with me to, to sort me out. But that's another story. But I think I have a memory from the court. I think I have. I have a memory of being in this little playpen and the little wooden bars. It's really quite interesting. I have another quite, very few pre-five memories, but one or two. We, we lived in a house, and there was a loft, and you got up the loft by a, what they call a Ramsey ladder. It was really scary. But I loved the loft, because the loft contained all sorts of things. I, I was born in 1961, uh, and I've just realized that this recently. It, was just, it wasn't long after the end of the Second World War, actually, just a few years. And so the loft was full of artifacts from World War II, uh, gas masks, uh, tin helmets, ration books. So I would go up the loft and I would explore this. But I couldn't go up on my own. And my memory is hanging on to my father 
was back as he would take me up the loft. Folks, that's how we defeat temptation. Jesus is the defeater. Jesus is the one who went into the very heart of hell and defeated the devil. And we cling to him by faith. And he will take us through. If we wrestle with temptation, we will lose. Turn to the victorious Christ. Whatever sins you're wrestling with on your own, you will lose. Look to Christ. Fill your mind with him. He is victorious. How does it all end? Not completely well. It's a mixed ending, isn't it? Verse 13. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him. Good. Yep. Until an opportune time. This is just round one. But here's a spoiler. I've read the book. And in round two, he gets knocked out on the cross. The powers of evil, the principalities of darkness were defeated roundly. He was devoid of most of his power. And round three will be when he comes again. Because the devil still has some power. And with this, I close. We're almost there. He's quoting there in verse 10, Psalm 90, 91. And he only quotes a couple of verses. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully, so they will not lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He didn't read the next verse, which is verse 13, which I will read. It says this. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. You see, Satan's own demise is written in Psalm 91. He doesn't realize that Jesus is the one, Genesis 3 tells us, who would be born of the seed of a woman who would crush the head of a serpent. He will reverse all the devil's work. And because he went into the wilderness, because he went into the desert, Jesus will make it a paradise again. And so, as we leave this morning, the dominant theme is not, oh, I can go out and defeat temptation. Let me go. The dominant theme is, hallelujah, what a savior. We have a savior who has defeated the devil. We have a Savior who has made an open show of him on the cross. And we have a Savior who at the great dawn of time will be seen to pour Satan and Hades into hell itself. Brothers, sisters, people, we will be encouraged, we will be tempted. But please be encouraged. We have one who has overcome the devil.
if you are united Christ in Christ, the devil will not have ultimate victory in your life. Not because of you, but because of him. Let me pray. Father, we we bow in, in your presence. Again, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done in us and through us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who defeated the powers of darkness. May our trust be in him. May we revel in the benefits of union with Christ. Forgive our sins. We ask this in the Savior's name. Now we're going to close our service by singing the song In Christ Alone.